Please do take a seat. And let's pray together as we come to God's word. Thank you, Father, for this reminder as we come to your words that it is you who speaks to us. We pray that you would speak to us this evening, that you would cause our faith to rise and cause our eyes to see your majestic love and your authority. Speak to us, we pray, in words of power, in words of truth, that all that we say and all our thoughts would be from you and we would be to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think you're thinking through various uh, aspects of what is the church, what the church is. So I thought it might be useful for us to look tonight at part of Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. So we'll read from Ephesians chapter 2, which I think you have on your sheet. Or you could look at it in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll be speaking under the heading of What is the Church? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In the 1960s, which before you say it is just before my time, just about, there were protests in that uh, era against what was called then the establishment which was all things in authority really in this country and around the world around the western world and at that time the church of england which was the national church was very much seen as part of the establishment by those who wanted to rebel against it this was an era of supposed liberation and one placard in one of the protests was memorable and it read this. It read, yes to Jesus, no to the church. Because the church was seen and maybe still is seen as part of the establishment. 
It was seen just as an institution. But the contents of that placard betrayed a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what the church is. So what is the church? That's our title. What is the church? Of course, the church is not a building or an institution. It is the people of God, those who have been called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, called out not just as individuals, but together into the family of God, the church. And from this passage in Ephesians 2, I would like us to look at three things. Now, this is not everything you could learn about the church. There are many, many other things you could receive and think about. But there are three important things from this passage. The first is that the church is united in Christ. The second is that the church is God's dwelling place. And the third is that the church is the start and center of the new creation ruled by Christ. So let's look at the first point. The church is united in Christ. And the first part of the passage we've read is a continuation of a section where Paul deals with one of the main problems in these churches in the region of Ephesus, and there were several churches, which was within the church there was a division between Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians in terms of their origins. Christians of Jewish origin had been influenced by false teachers who said that in order to be accepted by God, non-Jewish Christians should observe strict Jewish practices according to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And Paul speaks strongly against this. Not only is it wrong in itself, because it suggests that Christ's death for us on the cross is not sufficient to save us, but also because it created a division within the church. And he describes it here as a dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. Now, of course, you might say, well, I quite like walls and fences and boundaries. If I have a wall or a fence, I know where I am. I can say this side of the fence is my, is my side and that side is your side. That's quite useful. It gives us an, an area in which we may feel we have control or privacy. One of our neighbours recently replaced all his fences on every side of his garden with bigger fences than I've ever seen. They're 2.3 metres in height. I think they're probably visible from space. And inside the fences, he can say everything is his. This is all mine. It's private. In here, I can do what I like. It's not yours. I'm away from everybody. It's mine. But the church is not like that. It's not meant to have divisions. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh, that is, in his physical body, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which had divided Israel from all other nations. Christ has rendered that law powerless by fulfilling it in his sinless obedience and his payment for our sins in his death. So there is no dividing wall. By his life and death for us, all Christians have the same full access to God. There is no cause for division between us on that account. But of course, Paul sets out to the Gentile Christians, or the Christians of non-Jewish origin, 
how far they had been from God. And what you haven't got from the previous passage is just the strength of these two words, but now. But now it has completely changed for those who have faith in Christ. We were far off from God, but now, Paul writes, we, we have been brought near. We were dead, but now God has made us alive in Christ. Coming to faith in Jesus immediately brings you to God in full reconciliation. And this is achieved, in verse 13, by the blood of Christ, by his sacrificial death for us. We had no part in Christ before we were brought to him. But through his death and by faith in him, we have come to know Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, whom God has sent, to which the Old Testament points and relates entirely. And in fact, all Christians are brought near to God only by faith in Christ. The Christians of Jewish background, because of their heritage, in verse 17, were near. That is, they were nearer than the Gentile Christians. But they hadn't been brought to God. They also are given peace and reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, by the salvation achieved for us by Jesus' sinless life and his death on the cross, which fulfilled all the requirements of the law and of God's covenant. So opening up God's covenant promises to us, the law still stands, but we don't have to fill its requirements in order to be saved. For all Christians, God gives salvation only by faith in Christ and his fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Only by faith in Jesus as Saviour and Lord is there reconciliation, peace and community with each other. And our unity in Christ is based on the peace that God gives to his church. So we read that Christ has preached peace both to those who were far off and those who were near. In verse 17, both to Christians from a Jewish background and a non-Jewish background. Well, I don't know if on St. Valentine's Day, which was not very long ago, you sent or received a card. Maybe you did. But the point of the card is not just that somebody ha ends up with a, a piece of cardboard with a picture on it and a, or a funny picture or words that says something. The point of the card is that it states uh, the love of the sender and the relationship. And in, in a similar way, Jesus hasn't sent us, hasn't just sent us a card with a message of peace. We didn't get a, a peace card from Jesus. But in verse 14, we read, He himself is our peace. A card is important because it's about a relationship. But Jesus himself is our peace. It's our relationship with him and by faith in him that we have come to God. And in that relationship, he is our peace. In Micah chapter 5, verse 4, we read, He shall stand. This is a, a full picture of the Lord Jesus. He shall stand and shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and he shall be their peace. And therefore, as the church, as the covenant people of God, in our unity, we are to show forth God's peace which is a covenantal gift of God to us. In Isaiah 54, verse 10, God says, 
My steadfast love will not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. In Luke chapter 1, verse 77, God's purpose, Luke writes, is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus' incarnation was for our salvation and for our peace as God's church. At the birth of Jesus, the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Peace to those called to faith in Christ. Peace to the church. Maybe next time we all sing one of those Christmas carols that quotes from the angels, we should sing glory to God in the highest and peace to his church. That's what it means. And we've prayed for the peace of Ukraine and a peace not of subjugation but of justice and of freedom and it's right for us to pray for that nation in this dark hour and particularly our Christian brothers and sisters there. But the peace of God is only promised through Christ and only for his people, the church. The nation of Israel in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry did not have God's peace. In Luke 19, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But they didn't. They didn't have God's peace. God's peace is only for the church. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul's prayer is for his readers to have the peace of God which passes all understanding. The good news of Jesus is described in Acts 10 as the gospel of peace. And peace is not just absence of conflict, but it is God's gift of wholeness and well-being in harmony with him and with each other in the unity of the church. It is acceptance into the people of God, into the order established by God of which Christ is the mediator. So Jesus gives his peace to his disciples, to his people. In John 14, he says, Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it is said of Jesus that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Our unity in the church is part of God's great gift to us of his peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace that endures into eternity. And the work of God to create the church is the work of all the persons of the Trinity. Our access to God in verse 19 is in one spirit, called by the Holy Spirit through God's word in the Bible to faith in Christ, the peacemaker, who by his perfect self-sacrifice gives us full access to God the Father, the Holy Spirit by his indwelling, making us one with Christ and one with each other, called out together as one body, Christ's church. So Christ makes us one new humanity. In verse 15, Paul writes that Christ's achieved goal is to make one new man out of the two, that is, out of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, we probably don't have a similar problem today, but we may well have differences. But whatever our differences, Christ has made us in the church all one, all those who believe in him. He has reconciled all of his people to God by his completed work on the cross, and in the same action, he has created one new man, the church. You can't be reconciled to God by faith in Christ, 
and not be in the church. Both things are part of being saved by Christ. You can't sit at home on a Sunday and say, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't want to be involved in a church. You are called to Christ and to membership of his body, the church. That's why the protesters I mentioned at the start were wrong. Those who are in Christ are by definition part of the church. You can't be in Christ and not in the church. You can't say yes to Jesus and no to the church because the church is Christ's body, all those whom he has called to faith. Christ's reconciliation of us to God means also joining us together in one body, all unified with Christ and so with each other, all one in Christ. This is God's work in all of us. But we need to live in a way that reflects what God has done. Before we came to Christ, we had two enmities. We were enemies twice. We were enemies with God and we were enemies with each other. But Christ, by his completed work, has reconciled us to God and has given us peace with each other. We don't make peace ourselves, we don't create the peace, but we need to live in accordance with the peace that God has given. Paul writes that there must be no divisions amongst the Ephesian churches, and that must be so for us also. The references, or the reference in verse 12 to covenants of promise, show that this is important because God's promises to Israel are realized in this unified church. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God promised Abraham that he would become the father of a great nation that will bless all the families of the earth. In Isaiah 49, God said that his servant, the Messiah, will be a light for the nations, that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. But this is not an extension of the old Israel but the implementation of God's plan to create a new covenant people in Christ. In verse 15 here, Paul talks of a new man. I'm sorry if that sounds sexist, it's not meant to. That's, that's what he wrote. But the new man is the new person, the new humanity, out of the two communities, Jews and Gentiles. And this new humanity, the new body of Christ, is not an amalgam of the old groups, but as a new man, is one new man, in place of the two. The church is not an amalgam of previous groups cobbled together, but as a single new entity, a new body that transcends both the previous groups, all the previous groups. It is the body of all Christian believers with privileges that are the fulfillment of the covenant blessings promised in the Old Testament. The requirements for the granting of those covenant blessings have been fully achieved by the Lord Jesus. And those blessings are given to the church as a unified, single entity. By the merits of Christ, by what he has achieved, Christians are by adoption heirs of the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And more than that, in Christ, God has given us even greater benefits. By faith in Christ, we are brought near to God, we read here, through Jesus, given a relationship with God drawn into the saving purposes of God, not as converts to Judaism, not as members of an extended old nation of Israel under the Old Testament law, but as members of the new Israel, the newly recreated humanity that transcends all divisions, 
where all who believe in the Lord Jesus are on an equal footing, all belonging to God in Christ, all members together of one body, all with access to God himself through Christ alone, without any prior requirements to fulfill the Old Testament law, but by the grace of God unconditionally and fully members together of God's new people, inheritors together of the covenants of promise and of God's blessing, worked out through the history of the Jewish nation and now in the life of the Christian church down the centuries and to us today. We who were no people have become God's own unified people, one new humanity, Christ's church. And in verse 18 you might notice that Paul includes himself in this. No longer does he write you, but he writes we. We all have access to the Father in the one spirit. All division has gone. Those who were divided are now united in Christ in the one Holy Spirit as the one new humanity of God, his chosen people, his new Israel, his church. So the church is united in Christ. Second, the church is God's dwelling place. In verse 19, Paul describes his readers as fellow citizens in God's city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And also as the household of God. The household of God is God's family. I don't know what you think about your own family. But a family is an intimate picture, usually of children together, where God is the head of the family, caring for and protecting all the members of the family. A family is a place where there is love and identity and belonging. And Paul adds that the church, God's new people, is where God lives. It's part of, it's God in his family. In the later Old Testament times, God dwelt particularly in the Jerusalem temple. But Paul states that now the church, those called out together to faith in Christ, is God's temple, holy and set apart for God, the place where God dwells. Do you think of the church as the place where God dwells? It's an interesting, it's an alarming, unusual, challenging thought. And Jesus referred to this in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, when he said that he would raise up the new temple to replace the Jerusalem temple in three days. And John comments in that same passage that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. And the body of Christ is the church. And in the three days of his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus has created the church, the new temple, the dwelling place of God. And the new temple is not any old building. Its foundation is the apostles and prophets, we read here in verse 20. Those who have told out the word of God. The church, the new temple of God, is founded on the word of God, told out by the apostles and recorded and active through the Bible. God's word in the Bible, directed and given by the Holy Spirit, proclaims the salvation that Christ has won for us, and the reconciliation to God that he has achieved for us. And by his application of God's word to us and into our lives, the Holy Spirit calls us into being as God's church, and he builds us together as God's church, his new temple. The church is created through God's word, 
and it rests on the foundation of his word, delivered through the apostles and applied by the Holy Spirit to our lives to achieve our salvation and our sanctification together as God's people. The word of God is the source and the foundation of the church. And not only that, but Christ is the cornerstone, Paul says here. The stone, I don't know if you know what a cornerstone is, but the way he describes it is the stone in the foundation that determines where the rest of the foundation is placed and how the building is built from there on. As we come to faith in Christ, we become part of the temple, built and growing together in Christ. And this building, the new temple, is where God dwells. It's where his family is. It's his home. It's his seat of universal glory but also his intimate sanctuary where he deals with us one-to-one -one in love and graciousness and kindness. And God indwells and animates the whole structure of the new temple by his Holy Spirit, giving it his character of holiness. The church is the fulfillment of the earthly Jerusalem temple that was merely a shadow of it in years past. It is in the church that God manifests his glory to the universe and into eternity and displays his presence now in the world because the work of the church goes on into eternity. God's temple will not be destroyed, will not be taken away or removed and God's dwelling place will remain forever. So the church is united in Christ, the church is God's dwelling place and third, the church is the centre of God's new creation. So this new temple of God is not only an earthly but a heavenly entity, a reality now and into eternity for all Christians as the new people of God called and incorporated into Christ and already raised and seated with him at God's right hand. In the Old Testament it was foretold that all the nations would come to worship God at his temple. But that prophecy is not fulfilled in an earthly temple, but in the new temple founded by Christ, built on his completed work, his church, the holy structure that God has made in building together all those who have faith in Christ, members together of the new humanity, here and in the heavenly realms, those in whom God lives by his Holy Spirit, founded upon and joined together in the Lord Jesus Christ, built up together in the power of God as his holy temple. Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has established the church as the first and central part of God's new creation. Christ is the head of the church, the ruler of the new creation. It is from his headship of the church that he rules and directs everything in the new creation, the new heaven and earth. And we are built up together under his headship, the work of sanctification in us, which we often refer to, remaking us in the image of Christ, is not just an action of the Holy Spirit on us as individuals, separately, as if we were little eggs in an egg box, or little creatures in pods. But the Holy Spirit is at work in us together as the body of Christ, building the structure that is the church, to carry out God's work in the world now, and so that we grow together as God's temple, his dwelling place here on earth and into eternity, at the centre of the new creation. 
And the church is not just an entity that God creates for itself, but it has a central role in the fulfillment of his plan for the universe. Jesus is the last Adam. He has dealt with the sin that was endemic in all of us from Adam's fall. And Jesus has incorporated us into his body as the one new man, the new human race, the church, united and incorporated together in Christ. The creation and growth of the church is essential to the accomplishment of God's gracious and majestic eternal plan from eternity to eternity to fulfill his covenant promises on the last day to bring together everything under Christ with Christ and his church, his body, his temple, his people, the place where God dwells and shows forth his glory as the focal point of the new creation into eternity. So what is the church? The church is united in Christ. The church is God's dwelling place. The church is the center of God's new creation. Well, you might say, Richard, that's very interesting. But what does all that mean to us? What does it mean to me when I go to work or to school tomorrow morning? Well, God has called us to faith in Christ and also to be part of a church, to be joined together and built together, to be committed to each other in unity by the grace of God, created and sustained and growing on the foundation of Christ and the word of God to be sanctified together, to be God's dwelling place now and into eternity, the central part of the new creation, which is the consummation of all that God has planned. What is our response to this? Well, we should be thankful that God has called us to faith in Christ, that we have the privileged position of being part of the church, the temple in which God dwells, God's new people, a member of the new humanity established by Christ as the center of God's new creation. We should accept with joy the relationships we have within the church. We have been called to a particular place, a particular church. That should bring us joy as well as accepting the responsibilities we have within the church. And we should strive for the unity of the church and the work of the gospel of Christ, thankful for the power that God gives us by his spirit for us to become together the people of God, the people God wants us to be together, his church on earth and his dwelling place into eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul, for this clear view of the unity of the church in Christ, for the great assurance that the church is your dwelling place, your temple, now and into eternity, the center of your new creation. We thank you that you are at work in building us up together as your temple, making us together the people that you want us to be. We pray that you would enable us to rejoice in your work in our lives, making us thankful for each other in our fellowship together willingly being responsible for each other, striving together as your people in the work of telling out the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.